Did you know that in the past, love for one's spouse was considered an afterthought in marriage? In fact, there was a school of thought in the history of marriage that in an institution as important as marriage, loving your spouse could only get in the way. That's what we're going to talk to our guest today about. Dr. Dana Hicks is an Amazon best-selling author. He talks about themes of culture, change, church planting, and mission. He's a former pastor and uh, church planting leader. And today he has a new book he's going to talk to us about called The Knot. That's K-N-O-T, Knot. How to Secure Healthy Modern Relationships While Not Becoming Tied to Marriage marriage is past. He says the argument for the book is the fact that marriage has changed throughout history and knowing most of our marriages end in divorce today, can we look at changing it today so that the way we love those closest to us happens in a way that is fulfilling for us all? Is there a better form of marriage than what we've known Let's talk about it in our unconventional conversation today. And let me invite you as you listen to this podcast, would you consider being a subscriber for just $5.99 a month? You can help keep all our free content coming through the Pastor Paul community. So go to pastor-paul.com. You get a lot of fun stuff, but mostly you're just saying, hey, this message to the world that God is not mad at you is really important, and I want to be a part in supporting it with my money, my time, my emotional support, and my love. Pastor-Paul is the website. I'll love you for checking it out. Now to this unconventional conversation with Dr. Dana Hicks on Unconventional Conversations and the podcast with Pastor Paul. So you're a former pastor, you're in yeah. the space of spirituality and religion. So why a book about marriage? And maybe, I don't know if this would be a traditional marriage book, would it? I hope not. It's funny, after I wrote this, I, I got on Amazon and had no idea how many marriage books are out there. How many people that have been married for all kinds of lengths of time who are writing marriage books. But uh, no, it's not a traditional marriage book. What kind of brought me into it is is not that I've had wild success in marriage or anything like that, but I'd had thoughts for a long time about, about marriage generally, things that I thought needed to be said, especially in the Christian space, spirituality space, that nobody seemed to be saying, because I think marriage is a hot potato. It's, uh, it can be very heated discussions. When I was pastoring, the things that I said in this book, I probably couldn't have said just because it would have been a little too much for the people that I served and, and for the organizations that I worked for. Once I got out of those spaces, I felt the freedom to say that. My thought process on this really began when I read a book by a woman named Stephanie Kuntz called Marriage, A History. She's a historian out of Washington State Evergreen College in Washington State. She traces the history of marriage from the agricultural revolution to today. And after I read the book, I realized, man, everything we think, everything I thought I knew about marriage 
was wrong in terms of its origins, the way we think about it. And that was what got me on the process of it. And then trying to work it through that in my own mind, theologically, what does that look like? And that's the origins of the book. So the, theologically, from evangelical Christian Protestant perspective, marriages between one man and one woman. We know this, we hear it all the time. We say it so often that we right. think it was written in stone on Sinai. So th this book doesn't necessarily say that is the only legitimate form of marriage throughout history. Yeah, not only the only, not only is it not the only legitimate form of marriage throughout history, it's when we say biblical marriage, when you go back to the Hebrew scriptures, there's so many different forms of marriage in, in the Hebrew scriptures that that looks nothing like marriage as we understand it today. Yeah, the form that marriage takes throughout history is varied as the people that were in, in those marriages. And for the most, for most part of human history, marriage was about survival. It really wasn't about love. And I think that was the biggest surprise to me when I read Stephanie Kuhn's book. People didn't get married for most of human history. They went on dates and fell in love and whatnot. No, families got together and said, listen, we need to have a partnership with this other clan or this other tribe, or we need to find someone that can help work the farm. And uh, those were the sort of questions they were working. They were looking for good workers, good employees, more than they were someone that they had warm, fuzzy feelings about. And uh, they haven't had like warm, fuzzy military feelings. Military alliances and things like that. Exactly. Yeah. Of course, if you're higher in, in the society, you had treaties and things like that. But for the common folks, yeah, it was just mostly about, uh, about surviving and uh, just making it for from one day to the next. And so love was an afterthought, all those things. In fact, exactly. Stephanie Kuntz argues that a lot of people early on in, in marriage's history, they thought that actually being in love with your spouse was problematic because you don't want to confuse those emotions in an institution as important as marriage. And so you would, you would, you would often find love outside of marriage because it was much safer to do so because you didn't want to mess up your marriage by actually falling in love with your spouse. So yeah, again, this is a very different way of seeing the world than we're used to. And this is most of human history up until about the last two, 200 years or so. So in, in the writing times of the Jewish, my understanding, monogamy was a pretty strange idea, right? Wasn't, uh, wasn't monogamy a pretty unique and not a very common thing in the cultures around that day? Having more than one spouse in, in ancient times was more a symbol of wealth than it was a symbol of anything else. If you were a common person, you probably only had one spouse just because you didn't have the money to have more than that. But but yeah, the idea of, uh, of sexual monogamy, at least, yeah, was th those I, in the way, at least in the ways that we understood it, were pretty foreign to the Hebrew scriptures. And uh, they thought of things very differently than what we did. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's get into the crux of the thing. In yeah. reading your notes, people are asking, so are you for marriage? Are you against it? Is <laughs> And I guess really the question that comes out of reading some of your book as I've read and the information I've read and you, what you sent to me, is there a space where polyamory, which is starting to really catch steam in some of the younger generations now, is okay? Is okay with God? I don't even know what question I'm asking there exactly, but is there space for polyamory or these things to come into marriage and still be in a Christian context, I guess. Yeah, let me take a step back to the to that first question about am I for marriage or against marriage? And I think that that sort of binary isn't maybe a helpful question. I think I like to think that there's a third way. In other words, I don't want to say, hey, here's what marriage is, take it or leave it. You're either for it or against it. I think that marriage, the overall 
argument for the book is marriage has changed throughout history. So why can't it change again? Why can't we continue to reinvent it, continue to ask questions about what it means to love the people that are closest to us in unique and different ways? So the the theological framework, to, to answer your second question about the polyamory and whatnot, I do address that in the book. The way I land on it is I create a theological framework in one of the chapters in which I take that old saying from architecture, form follows function. And the idea is that when we have a... When we have a construct, a social construct like marriage, its form, the way it's expressed is always changing. It's always evolving. It's always becoming new, but its function it always stays the same. The way in which its expression will always change, but its essence stays the same. The essence is how do we create structures in which we can love another person and create for their best well-being in, in, in their lives? And what that looks like, how we love another person changes all the time. The context changes all the time. We know this intuitively, like Paul, you and I have kids and the way in which we love our kids changes all the time because our kids change in age and they change in often what they need. Sometimes they need a hug. Sometimes they need 20 bucks. Sometimes they need a swift kick in the pants. Sometimes they need a little bit of correction. Sometimes they need advice. Sometimes it just depends all the time. So my form is always changing. The way in which I love them is always changing, but the function always remains the same. I'm always, my intention is always for their best, for their well-being, for their thriving in, in, in life, them and the people around them. So in the same way, marriage, I believe, is the same thing. We, The form can constantly change. The way it expresses itself can constantly change, but the function always stays the same. So the function is how do I create an environment of well-being and thriving for my partner and for the people around us and for the people in our lives? And Paul, you and I have talked about this too. If you've been married any length of time, your marriage evolves, it changes, it becomes different. The way in which when you're a starry-eyed newlywed, your needs, the things that you're looking for that are helpful in that marriage. Sorry, that's my phone going off. I didn't have it turned off. (laughs) Bad job by me, sorry. When Yeah. So when you're newlywed, it's one thing. When you have young children, all of a sudden now your whole world revolves around this little tiny human and your needs change. What, you know, and that continues to evolve as your kids grow, as you become an empty nester, as you have health problems, as you, as you have a financial crisis in your life, all the different things that you encounter as uh, throughout a, a person's life and marriage. The marriage changes, the needs that you have change. And so it flexes the form constantly changes. The function always stays the same. And so that's how I approach it in this. So to answer your question more directly in terms of polyamory, the question for me isn't what kind of form is the most important. It's is, is what is the function of your marriage? If your marriage designation is to be a loving environment to cause the most amount of human thriving in another person, that form may look like polyamory or it may not. And it may look like that for a season and then not it really depends on the better question about fo- then form to me is function how are we creating loving environments and that can look a million different ways just like there's a million different marriages people with different 
educational backgrounds and families of origin and physical disabilities and sexual orientations and all those things are all different for everybody. But hopefully the function is the same to create loving, healthy and thriving environments. And I think most people understand polyamory, but maybe give a brief definition of what polyamory can look like, what it means. Yeah, the word polyamory, really two words, poly meaning many, and amory or amorous meaning love, many loves is literally what it means. And the idea is that human beings have the capacity to love romantically more than one person at the same time. And so obviously that's a controversial position for a lot of folks. We're steeped very much in a very monogamous culture, and even all our romantic comedies are based on that. And But uh, the idea is, yeah, sometimes people share their hearts and, and or their bodies with other people. And, and when they do that, they call it polyamory with the consent of their partners. That's the important, that's the important caveat to that. If it's, if you're cheating, that's not polyamory. It's cheating. <laughs> that's adultery <laughs> at that point. And that's a whole different discussion, but that's not what we're talking about. And I do think actually that's, for me, that's an important distinction because my definition of sin isn't a violation of a rule book. Sin is violation of relationship. And yeah, yeah. so to me, two adults who are being honest with each other and are emotionally honest and say, even if it's a husband that says, I'm going to go play six hours of golf every Saturday and Sunday, and the wife really isn't on board with that, that to me, there's an emotional polyamory there that culture may say is okay, but I would still sure. say it's then because that's a husband not being attentive to the emotional needs of a spouse. Whereas there may be situations where even sexually people can agree, okay, you can do this to fulfill this need that I can't, but we're still going to be together. So to me, sin is much different than here's the rules because you can violate, be in the rules of Christianity and still violating. The, right. The, yeah. The and when, when we get into that rules-based stuff, it gets, 
it gets to be absurd after a while. It's, we'd like life to be that simple where we just say, here's the rules, just follow the rules, everything works out great. But the old ethics question is, you guy comes up to you with a gun and says, hey, I'm here to murder your neighbor. Have you seen him? Is it okay to lie yeah. at that point? And there, there might be a higher good there going on beyond just following a rule of thou shalt not lie kind of thing. And so... Yeah, following rules-based religion, you paint yourself into a corner real quick with that because the form of what comes out often is may have a, the appearance of goodness, but often can be very destructive. Yeah. So let's talk about the problem, perhaps, that you're addressing in this book. It's interesting what it stirs in me is I remember as a pastor of a church dealing with couples who were struggling in their relationships, mm. feeling like if I can't get these this marriage fixed, it's a failure. And I can actually still clearly in my mind remember the first time as a pastor I ever said, you know what? I think you two need to get divorced. I think you're just making each other so miserable. Go to, And it just seemed like such a failure of, of me as a pastor and all yeah. of those things. But again, it, th those are rules that that get us stuck. And I don't know, is that something around the issue that you're trying to address in the book? Something like that. Around divorce? You mean generally? Maybe we get stuck feeling like marriage has to look a certain way because that's what we've been yeah, taught. And yeah. you're trying to give some freedom maybe and release from shame, perhaps. I, I, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And again, everybody's different. You know, Paul, your experience is similar to mine as well. As you counsel couples, you realize real quick, man, all those formulas I learned that it's just not quite that simple. Life is just a lot more complicated and nuanced when everybody's different and everybody has a different, different approach. And I've had those conversations too, where I've thought, man, it may very well be that divorce is the best of a lot of really bad options here. Not that divorce is a good thing, but it's, I'm looking at your other options and they're even worse. And, uh, and sometimes I think that's the case. I, and Part of, I think, what's gotten us where we are today, too, is just the nature of human beings and human thriving physically. When your life expectancy was to be 35, 40 years old before you died, that's one thing to say till death do us part. That's There's not a whole lot of commitment there. But when you're going to live to be 90, we're talking about a serious commitment here. And there's a lot that happens between in 60, 70 years when, before, yeah. between when you say I do and when you actually die. So it's... It's a pretty big commitment. And so I think that's part of what's happening in this conversation surrounding marriage as well, is realizing that people grow, things change. Sometimes people grow apart. And that's not really the fault of anybody necessarily. It's just the nature of what happens over the course of years and years and years. And, yeah. and so again, not, trying not to be rigid and legalistic about it and trying to allow for a certain amount of grace in, in all of that to say everything, every situation is a little different and the form of it, its expression should be the secondary concern to what its purpose is, its form. I, I, I actually know, trying to count the numbers in my head, but I, I know couples for sure who are on second, third marriages who are doing very well because I don't know, somehow that first marriage sometimes, and I'm in my first marriage still, but it seems like you're marrying for different reasons. It may mm -hmm. just be because you grew up in an environment where you're not allowed to have sex and you're just like, I want to have sex. So I want to get married. I'm driven by my sex drive. And then after you're married a few years, you're like, oh, that all goes away. And now I got to live with this person. And so I, yeah. I don't know if, if the better freedom is saying you can, you can be divorced and find somebody else. 
or I, what I hear you saying too is maybe there you can find other ways to live together so you don't have to get divorced. The mm -hmm. partnership can change so you can have your shared history together, but maybe not have to separate. Yeah, for sure. And you probably know couples like that too, that they've left the traditional understanding of marriage behind. I know a couple that they have a parenting marriage. They share parenting responsibilities. They live together under the same roof, but they have separate finances. They, I think they would consider themselves polyamorous. They have relationships outside of that, but their relationship with each other is primarily parenting and decided to stay together for the sake of the kids and try to make that work. But at the end of the day, yeah, they've found other ways to express that that's very non-traditional. Yeah. And I think and a, I, a lot of us in Gen X are getting to the place where the kids are moving out. And I think those relationships are going to have to change. And my wife and I have been in conversations. And yes, our marriage isn't perfect all the time. You'll be shocked <laughs> to hear where the, there's been this stated idea of, yeah, but we made a vow at the altar together. And we've been thinking like, we don't want to be together because we're legally forced to be by some supernatural <laughs> law. Can yeah. we choose each other again? Can we find a way to choose each other again? And yeah, which is that's, beautiful. That's, yeah. yeah, yeah, I think so. Now, I'm gonna go back a couple steps. You're talking about people who get married, maybe and their motivation is that, and you and I grew up evangelical, so I really related to that. I really want to have sex. And the only way to get there is by, by saying these vows. Okay, I'll say them, you know, kind of thing. But um, I, in, in researching for the book, one of the things I discovered is that the divorce rate among evangelicals is actually higher than the divorce rate for the general population. And, wow. and here's the other caveat that the, there's a pretty tight correlation with how many evangelicals you live around and your divorce rate. So not just evangelicals themselves, but if you live around evangelicals, your divorce rate is higher. And so they did, they dug into that, trying to figure out why is this the case? And what they discovered is that mostly it's because evangelicals marry so, and when you're in a culture where everybody's marrying young, then other people marry young. And the yeah. younger you marry, the higher the divorce rate. It's just, it's a pretty tight correlation there because you don't know who you are. You're, sometimes your brains aren't even fully functioned and developed and you don't understand often a lot of your own identity and needs and wants in life. And so the divorce rate for people who are young are really high. And uh, so that motivation of, hey, let's get married so we can have sex ends up being a huge backfire for, for evangelicals. It, it's interesting because I've always heard the stat that divorce is equal in the church to outside. So it's now surpassed. It's surpassed, and yes. Now, now, and I always used to hear if two virgins get married, they're much more likely to not get divorced. Is that is there any statistic you know around that? Is that true or not true? I didn't find anything in particular to that. I think they're too hard to find <laughs> to, <laughs> to do the true. research. Yeah, maybe. But uh, and I've always thought, you know, what that <laughs> there's two reasons for that stat. One, you don't know whether sex is good or not. You've never had it before. And two, you're in an environment where divorce is extremely looked down upon and. Yeah. And so you go to the old uh, Anne Graham thing of, I would rather kill my husband than divorce him. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> murder is much more socially acceptable than divorce. Yeah. Which is odd, really. Yes. Uh, but yeah, no, there was, I'm trying to remember exactly what it was, but there was research around, there was this 
uh, notion that people who lived together before marriage had a higher divorce rate than people that didn't. And they discovered that that wasn't the case. Actually, people who lived together before marriage actually had a lower divorce rate than those who didn't. So interesting. Um, yeah. So again, yeah. And again, these correlations are, are, they're not like 80% better marriage. It's 15% small margins, not like huge sweeps of generalizations, but yeah, definitely different than the propaganda we were fed anyway. I have, I've heard these correlations, like you said, marriage was for survival for most of human history. And I've even heard in some cultures I have, you get married and the woman knows the man is going to cheat on her, but they're an agreed upon, but mm -hmm. you're going to take care of me and you're not going to do it in front of my face. And, and mm -hmm. it is that survival thing. But even in first world marriages more where maybe now we're looking more for love and fulfillment, I still think we're still human beings and human beings have a basic need of, of safety, value, and purpose, I always say in my coaching. Sure. And, and the thing that I find interesting is if we're asking one person for the next 50, 60, 70 years of our life, as you said, as we're getting older and if we get married young, you're going to meet all those needs for me as this one person forevermore. Mm -hmm. Seems like an unfair thing to put on another person, doesn't it? I mean, that's yeah. almost an unfair expectation for another human being. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. I have a whole chapter in the book on that. And it's a fool's errand, really, to think that you're going to find that magic person who can who will never stress you out and will fulfill every whim and desire that you've ever had in your life. And that'll just be easy. And I've had, you probably had these experiences too, where you've counseled a couple and they're like, yeah, this is just really hard. And you think, yeah, marriage is. And they're like, no, but this is supposed to be my soulmate. It's supposed to be easy. <laughs> it's like, no, it's hard. Trust me. It's supposed to be hard. But uh, yeah, that that's uh, that, that's for real, for sure. What do you think about the idea being evangelicals as we are or have been or post-evangelical now, perhaps, the idea of, of sex being an intertwining of souls? So that's where it's not like other things. It's not like going golfing with the boys as an intimate, emotional intimacy or having a meeting with somebody of the opposite gender, but sex being a soul tie, as, as we've mm -hmm. always heard, versus being yeah. just a human biological event that we can do and not create some supernatural thing that we have to be exercised from sometime in the future. Yeah, I heard this sermon years ago from John Ortberg, and he used this framework that I really liked. He talked about in, in, when in human sexuality, we have a tendency to think of ourselves either as angels or animals. And, and so the animal thing is we, we just say, Hey, we're mammals, right? And we have hormones and we see things that we want to have sex with. And so that's what we do. And so what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And that's a mindset. But I think most honest people, you know, what separates us from most other mammals is that human beings are just meaning making machines. And it's really hard to have a sexual encounter with another human being without asking, so what did that mean? Dogs don't sit around pondering, does she really love me for more than just my body? What kind of thing. Or cats don't say, I just don't think you're as committed to this as I am. I don't think about the meaning of things like human beings do. And so I think 
One extreme is that we say, we're, hey, we're just animals, but we're not. If, any honest look at that. If that was the case, we wouldn't make a big deal about sexual harassment or rape or things like that. Obviously, it's more than just a biological function. It's something more meaningful than that. The other extreme is to treat ourselves like angels, that, that we that we that our physical selves don't exist that that it doesn't matter that sexuality doesn't matter at all to us or that human desire doesn't matter at all and either one of those extremes is harmful if we pretend if we minimize human sexuality to oh it's just sex kind of thing i think we're doing ourselves as big a disservice as if we pretend that we're animals as well and so i think that we're neither angels nor animals we're somewhere in between there and finding that sort of healthy in between, I think, is is where most human thriving takes place. Now you're talking nuance, and you can no longer be a part of that <laughs> evangelical circles. So, that's why they kicked me out. Yeah, I think that is. I think that's brilliant because we do look at these things as binary, and and marriage, particularly for young women, is taught as this again a survival mechanism. Don't withhold yourself from your husband. Don't let yourself mm. gain weight. Keep your husband. I can't get over how many fat pastors I've seen teaching women, like, keep yourself <laughs> in shape. And the irony and so knows no end. Yeah. And we do make sex to be either this very soulful or survival thing. And some humans, maybe sometimes we just do it because it's fun and it feels good and it's just part of what we do. And can we just not? Yeah, and uh, I, I think just, theology, I think right. just, yeah, theology generally has been focused around dysfunction. Yeah, just like Western medicine and Western psychology, we tend to focus on the problems, the what goes wrong in, instead of what goes right. And it's just recently that Western psychology began to study things like happiness and joy and things like that and asking questions like, what does it take for humans to really be happy and thrive and feel well? Likewise in health, Western medicine's very much about trying to fix the problems that we already have as opposed to trying to prevent those problems or what it means to be a healthy person. And I think in theology has been same thing. It, it's really focused around sin and about what goes wrong. And, and questions around sexuality focus around what can go wrong with human sexuality. Yeah, there's some things that can go wrong with it. It can be really dehumanizing. It can be really bad at times and, and brutal, but it also can be pretty amazing and pretty, yeah. pretty beautiful. And it can bond human beings together and it can be very meaningful to people. Yeah, you know, we get caught up in the dysfunction of it without, I never feel like I have to theologically justify a sunset or, a beautiful piece of music or a really well-prepared meal or something like that. But for some reason, we have to theologically justify sex, the pleasure of sex. And why is that? What is our hang-up with that, that we feel like we have to justify the fact that, well, maybe it just feels good. Maybe we just like it. Is that okay? That is such a brilliant point. I love that. I'm mulling that over in my head. Like I never <laughs> have to theologically justify a sunset. Isn't that's That is really a powerful thought. Is that yours or did you steal it from somebody? Yeah, I probably read it somewhere a long time ago, but I'm not smart enough to give credit where it's due. But, yeah. I always said as a pastor, the first time you attribute to somebody, the second <laughs> time you say, I've heard it said, and then the third time it's yours. You could, yeah, you could, you I've could always it. said, yes. 
But it's so, that's so true. And it's, I actually just read an article the other day about how masturbation is good for you and, and has really positive attributes. And we were just taught all the time growing up, no, it's the worst thing you can do. And it's horrible. And we've just been so scared of human function for so long. It, it makes me laugh. The book is The Knot. You saw on, uh, if you're watching on YouTube or Facebook, DanaHicks.blog is the website. The book is The Knot, How to Secure Healthy Modern Relationships While Not Being Tied to Marriage's Past. All right, our conversation with Dr. Dana Hicks isn't over. Part two will be coming up in a couple of weeks in which we'll talk with Dr. Hicks about the fact that he says... One, uh, one man, one woman marriage can be suffocating us from relationship. And is there a better way to do it? Check it out. If you're a subscriber, you can access it right away. You don't have to wait. Just go to the website, pastor-paul.com, and it'll tell you how you can listen to part two today. But for those of you that aren't subscribers, it'll be coming up in a couple of weeks, and we hope you'll join us for that. Go to pastor-paul.com to find out about my coaching, mentorship, theological work, and a lot of other things we do as we are looking to pursue emotional and spiritual well-being and to do so together. God's not mad at you. We'll see you next time on Unconventional Conversations with Pastor Paul.